Welcome to the Park Road Podcast for July 26th, 2015. Today's podcast is a sermon given by Russ Dean, co-pastor with Amy Jacks Dean at Park Road Baptist Church. His sermon today is entitled, Saving Life and Losing It, The Naked Truth. You may already know this, but there is a difference in being naked and being naked. (laughs) Louis Grizzard, that insightful social commentator whose definition of redneck made him famous. You know, you might be a redneck if your last words were, hey y'all, watch this. Yes, that Louis Grizzard has also helpfully demarcated the precise connotative difference between nakedness and nakedness. Being naked just means you don't have any clothes on. Being naked means you're naked and you're up to something. (laughs) That word naked almost has an inappropriate ring to it, at least when spoken from a Baptist pulpit, don't you think? I had to practice saying it several times just to get it to come out like a proper noun, naked, and to be able to say it without blushing. Adam and Eve learned to be ashamed, and somehow they passed along their naked guilt to the rest of us. God said it need not be, but from the beginning our nakedness has been a source of embarrassment. The Bible uses the word naked or nakedness almost a hundred times, often as a metaphor or symbol referring to guilt and innocence. In the book of Hebrews, we read that no creature is hidden. All are naked before God. And in his apocalyptic revelation of the end of all things, John has a triumphant Jesus preparing to wage war against Satan and his army And Jesus stands and said, Blessed is the one who stays awake and is clothed, not going about naked and exposed to shame. When we hear the word naked then in Scripture, we need to be prepared that the text is probably trying to tell us something deeply personal and intimately important, but probably not something about how many clothes a character happens not to be wearing in the story. After he emerged from that weathered and smelly ark, for example, old Noah plants a vineyard, and as soon as there is a harvest, he gets drunk. Now, if you'd been cooped up with that many animals for that long in that small uh, quarters, you might want something to drink too. Apparently, old Noah passed out cold in his tent And he was naked. Uh, Maybe he was naked, I don't know. And his son, Ham, sees him lying there. His other two sons, Shem and Japheth, realize their father's vulnerability, and they shield their eyes, and they cover his nakedness. When he awoke and shook off his hangover, Noah pronounces a curse on Ham and his son, Canaan. It's a curse that has been a source of controversy ever since. What does it mean that Noah was naked? 
Then there are two tales in the New Testament that have always intrigued me. We're told that after Jesus was resurrected, he went to the beach there along the Sea of Galilee, and he prepared breakfast for Peter and a few of the disciples who had so quickly gone back to a career in fishing after Jesus died. And Peter was startled to see Jesus, and when he recognizes him for who he is, the Scripture says, and I'm not making this up or telling it in my own words, the Scripture says, Peter put on some clothes for he was naked. And he jumped into the sea so he could swim ashore to Jesus. Now, I have never understood that story. And I have never been a fisherman. And maybe Peter knew something about fishing that I did not. Fishing naked. Strange story. And then there's the tale that we read in today's text. It is an odd episode for Mark to include in the midst of this plot of judgment and doom. The story is quickly reaching its climax, its climax, and this high point is also the rock bottom. Judas has betrayed his friend with a cold, cruel kiss, and the religious elites are about to assemble a kangaroo court after trumped-up charges or corroborated by contradicting and inconsistent witnesses, they shuffle an innocent man off so he can be sentenced to death by the most powerful man in the land. Mark would have us believe that Pilate could be and was manipulated by implied threats to his authority. This is a claim which historians find dubious. This man was infamous for his cruelty. He hardly needed any incentive, nor should we believe he could be pressured to act ruthlessly by crowds of powerless peasants and their religious agitators. The varying presentations of Pilate in the four Gospels, all the Gospels don't present Pilate as so sympathetic to Jesus' cause. And these varying presentations have intrigued careful readers for centuries. But in the midst of this frighteningly true story of political violence and religious corruption, compromise, and culpability, Mark feels compelled to share a peculiar peculiar anecdote about a young man unnamed who follows the posse of betrayers He is wearing nothing but a toga. And apparently his presence is a threat or an annoyance to the mob. So they try to apprehend him, but he quickly pulls out of his linen shroud and he runs away completely naked. What? What's that all about? Some commentators have suggested that the unnamed man actually represents the writer, Mark. They say this episode offers a kind of signature on Mark's gospel. Others believe Mark includes this detail in a gospel not otherwise prone to exacting detail as a way of validating the veracity of his story. In other words, if someone was close enough to see something with detail like this, this odd and strange, then what follows crucifixion and resurrection? Well, we ought to be able to trust that too. 
Chad Myers, whose commentary has been so influential to us in this preaching series, says neither of those explanations is adequate. Myers says, and I quote, Mark has obviously inserted this cameo here at the dramatic nadir of this story for a purpose. It is up to narrative analysis to recover that purpose. Let me explain. This first young man that we read about is the first of two unnamed, seemingly out-of-place young men who feature purposely in the end of Mark's narrative. This, the first young man, runs away naked. The other is found sitting at the entrance of an empty tomb. One is a foreshadowing of the other, a mirror but contrasting image of the other. And those linen clothes that the first young man left behind, we find them again also, and also at that empty tomb, lying carefully folded but dormant, discarded for their original purpose. The first linen cloak was the cloak of discipleship community, stripped bare of its guilt. Stripped bare in its guilt. That first young man, Meyer says, is all of those and all of us who betray the commitments that Jesus taught. Uncovered, unprotected, naked in our guilt, we run away in shame. The second linen wrapping reveals the promise that Jesus has been trying to teach his hard-hearted, closed-minded followers from the very beginning of his ministry in Galilee. There is new life, but that new life will only come when we learn to give our lives away, to die to one another for the sake of something bigger than ourselves. The first young man is the literary creation of a creative writer who is producing a gospel, not recording a biography. One who is telling a story that weaves a tapestry of spiritual truth and life-changing power. That young man, running into a disgraced darkness, is set in opposition to the young man of the empty tomb who sits at the dawn of a new day as a witness to resurrection. That second young man reminds us of Jesus' mission and the means of achieving that good news which has been the solitary focus of Mark's gospel. If any want to become my followers, Jesus says, let them deny themselves and take up their cross. Cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who will lose their life for my sake and the sake of the gospel for something bigger, they will find it. The first young man is a symbol of the discipleship community, all who betrayed Jesus, just as he said they would. And that first young man is a symbol of the community of Christian disciples today, the church 
The Christian church, too often just as wrong-minded and close-hearted as our forebears. Jesus offers a truth that is good news, the best news, the only news that can in the long run save humanity from the weight of our own solitary selfishness. But the truth is that we cannot stop collecting our expensive toys and worrying about our investment portfolios, trying to buy and trade and hoard and save our own lives. We cannot stop relishing in the rightness of our own religious dogmas and looking at ourselves in the mirror long enough to see the wisdom of Jesus' radical calling. It is a truth we cannot handle. You may recognize the allusion there. It's one of the best lines in all of movie history. Jack Nicholson plays a Marine colonel who has been called to court as a witness in a crime which resulted in the death of a weak and timid recruit named William Santiago, Willie. Colonel Jessup is being questioned by a young, brash attorney played by Tom Cruise. His character, Daniel Caffey, has no actual military experience and is pitied by a disgusted colonel, hardened by years of service to his country and jaded by a narrow arrogance. Kathy knows in his heart that the colonel was responsible for an order called in military parlance a code red. Kathy knows the colonel gave the code red, which resulted in the fatal treatment of the young recruit, And he is pushing all of the colonel's buttons, nudging him to the edge of an unintended confession he will stumble on in the fury of his own self-righteousness. The following dialogue leads to the climax of this powerful scene. You want answers, Jessup mocks the attorney. I think I'm entitled, Caffey says. You want answers? And Caffey barks back, I want the truth. To which Nicholson shouts his famous line, you can't handle the truth. Emboldened by his patronizing authority, the colonel takes command of the scene. Son, we live in a world that has walls. And those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? I have a greater responsibility than you could fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know, that Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth. Because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use those words as the backbone of a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand your post. Either way, I don't care what you think you are entitled to. 
wound up so tightly in that powerful mythology of honor and code and loyalty. The old rugged colonel works himself into a frenzy and in his own betraying pride, he steps into the young attorney's snare. Jessup admits in an explosion of superiority, yes, I gave the code red because that's what powerful men do to save weak men's Well, there is deep, hard truth in the scene that ends poignantly when one of the two Marines who has been accused of killing the innocent Santiago turns to the other one who hasn't understood what's been going on. This one says, we did nothing wrong. And the first said, yeah, we did. We were supposed to fight for people who could not fight for themselves. We were supposed to fight for Willie. The religious elites of Jesus' day were men of honor and code and loyalty. And Pilate was a man who practiced the power of such a powerful mythology. And then a simple peasant with the gift to empower the powerless, exposes the futility of that conventional wisdom which we still practice. It cost Jesus his life. It always will. We cannot handle the truth either. So we wrap ourselves in the security of our own narratives of so-called truth and in the systems of domination which our own nation has perfected, just like ancient Rome did. The only difference is that the dominant religious voice today is Christian, not Jewish. And the reach of political power and the weapons of our warfare are so much more dangerous today. Mark offers a narrative of judgment. Jesus is betrayed by his own friends, and then he stands powerless before the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before the screaming crowds. But a young man, running scared among the twisted trees of Gethsemane, naked in his own guilt, running in the shadows of a desperate act, seeking to save his own life, This young man tells the real story. The truth of Jesus' simple message, love one another in the same way that I have loved you. The cross is the truth which judges us all. We can only hope judgment is not the end of the story. May it be so. Thanks for listening today. We invite you to learn more about Park Road at parkroadbaptist.org. Park Road is a progressive faith community located in Charlotte, North Carolina, encouraging independent thought, community service, social justice, and interfaith understanding. Grace and peace to you.